today on Yellowstone Teton's Travel Podcast. They got several rafts. One raft got in the, turned upside down and they lost all their rods. Everything broke. So as Jim told me the story himself, so what he did is he started sitting on the bank. He was an engineer and he was started putting rods together without a ferrule, putting one rod over the other rod. And he designed a ferrolite ferrule. He went back to work the following week and they designed the first rod with a ferrolite ferrule and it stopped, changed the whole section, the whole course of rod building forever. Bob Jacklin on the creation of the modern day fly rod ferrule. We're traveling to West Yellowstone and one of the classic fly shops in the country today on Traveled. Welcome to Traveled, where it's all about the journey we are all on in fly fishing and in life. This is our chance to take a deep dive into a specific area around the country so you have a better feel for the people, the resources, and community that make this part of the country so unique. Before we jump into it with uh, Bob Jacklin today, I wanted to share a little love with our travel sponsor. This podcast is powered by Swing Outdoors and the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash teton, T-E-T-O-N, and if you get a chance, you can check in with any of the hotels, lodges, uh, fly shops, any of the businesses and brands that are at that website. And you support this podcast by checking out Yellowstone Teton. This week, Bob Jacklin is here to share the stories from many years of uh, fishing and guiding and teaching in the West Yellowstone area. We hear about how his wall of hats came to be. We discover uh, the Firehouse River. And we hear the story about this uh, Madison River epic 10-pound uh, fish that was caught on video, and uh, this thing went viral. It's a pretty good story. Tons of good stuff from Bob. He's a guy we've been trying to get on for a long time. So it's time to experience the road less traveled. Let's jump into this one with one of the most classic fly shops and the man behind it. Here we go, Bob Jacklin. How you doing, Bob? We're doing well. It's good morning. Yeah, thanks for thanks for making some time this morning to come on the show and chat about your history. You have a long, uh, long history. You're very well known. I've heard a lot about you. I've actually had a, a number of people that you've mentored over the years that have either been through your shop, worked for you, and uh, and now they're out doing their whole thing. How does that feel for you when you see all these people, these kids that you know they literally were little kids when they first started, and now they're running their own fly fishing businesses? What how's that feel for you? I feel real good. I hired them as young boys, and uh, several, quite a few of them, not just one or two, and uh, worked with them. And uh, in some cases, I had a place for them to stay, which is tough to find in West Yellowstone. But the newer shop, I had a, a place for about three of them upstairs in a apartment. So it worked out real good for a lot of years. Yeah. How is that? Now, it's been, uh, I think it was the early 70s, right? Was it 74 when you opened the shop? I opened in, in April 1974, yes. Yeah, April 1974. This is always probably the, the, the obvious question, but since then, I mean, has there been a lot of changes in West Yellowstone? Well, yeah, especially the last 10 years, we're getting a lot more people. And uh, the problem is with fishing a lot of the times is finding a place to park. Right. It used to be finding a good spot to fish you could get there, but nowadays the last, the last three years has been so crowded, it's tough to... You can still get some good fishing, but you got to find a place to park. All, in other words, all the good fishing areas and tourist areas are pretty well filled up. That's right. That's right. And what are your what are the main rivers that you fish? If you had to say, what's the first river if you're going out on your own to fish that you're hitting? The first river we usually fish is the Firehole River, 
and the Madison in the park, but the fire hole is the top river in the park as far as early. It's clear water, no, normally clear. I don't know about this year, but clear water right up until mid-June. It starts about the 10th of June fishing well. Okay, and so the fire hole, that's right, and that's the one that's really interesting because it literally has hot springs right in, in, throughout the stream. You can catch a fish right next to a hot spring. Yeah, wherever <laughs> water's hot, 10 feet away, it's cold. Right, right. Yeah, that is cool. So you spent most of your time, I mean, obviously you're at the gates, you're in West Yellowstone right there, um, but you are you fish mostly in the park. Is that kind of where you've done your guiding and, and teaching? No, we guide on the Madison River for many years and float the river. We, we've got right now, I have to be honest with you, though, I retired from guiding. I have 53 years of guiding, 53 years of outfitting and guiding, and I just decided this year would be my last. This was last year was my last year of guiding. I'm getting to be up in age. I'm 78 years old, and I'm wearing out a little bit. I hear you. I hear you. My dad was a guide for many years, and uh, and I remember when he told me. I asked him one day about going fishing, and he said, "You know what? I, I <laughs> you know, basically, I mean, we all we all get older, right?" And he was basically saying, "Hey, I don't get out as much. I'm not doing the jumping in and out of the boats, right? All that stuff." I gave up the boat. We have guys that worked for us right up to last year and do a good job floating the river. But any the last few years, I'm doing pretty much wade trips and teaching people fly fly casting theory and and how to handle a river by wading. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I want to talk about fly casting because I know that's something you've been an expert on for many years. Um, but before we get into that, talk about like the shop itself. So you have, you're still, you, have, you still have a program. You have guides at your shop. They're still, if somebody wanted to trip, they can go to you. Not this year. I'm, I'm retired from guiding. I'm not doing any outfitting this year. But Mark Johnson has been with me and uh, I think he's working with Big Sky Anglers this oh, year. And Rob Orsini's working with uh, Blue Ribbon Flies this year, I think. So both of my guides are found some other good folks to work with. That's amazing. Yeah. And we know the guys at Big Sky, we've definitely had them on the podcast. And it seems like all the names around that area, you know, your shop, you know, like Bud Lilly, right? That was you, you, that was one of your mentors, all these big names. Why is it that there's so many shops that seem like they're all, everybody knows them around the country? Why do you think that is in that area? Well, this is probably the finest general, generally the finest fly fishing for trout any place in the country right here in West Yellowstone. That's why I settled here when I got out of the Army in 19... I started guiding in 1969. Bud Lilly offered me a job, and I started guiding for Bud. We became... We were competitors for a while, but we became very, very close friends. I was with him and wrote him a letter of thank you for getting me started in this or helping me get started. And he was like one of my big competitors, but a good friend, and I was with him the night before he died. Oh, wow. So, but little, yeah, and he was, and that's uh, obviously another huge name out there who um, I think is in the spot where the Big Sky Anglers, right? They they kind of uh, same spot, yeah, yeah, same spot. So, so talk about that a little bit. I, I want to dig more into obviously what you have going and your history, but like Bud Lilly, what what? Because I, you know, obviously we haven't had him on the show. Talk about him a little bit. How was you know what made him so uh, important or unique in that area? What made him is so good as well as Bud Lilly and Pat Barnes goes back even before Bud. But Bud started his business around 1951, and he just entered it without being involved. Right out of the Navy, he was 
after the Second World War, and he uh, got into the fishing business. There was a shop for sale in West Yellowstone, which is they didn't want a lot of money, and Bud was newly married and you know, just took a chance on it, and he was able to uh, to rent a location at Eagle's store, Eagle's Tackle store and all. Bud worked the fishing department at that store and changed the name to Bud Lilly's Trout Shop. It used to be called Trout Shop. And um, I wrote about that. I finished a book with Bruce Staples. We just, it was published last spring. It's called The Fly Fishing History of West Yellowstone. The whole the thing is there, everything about it, where it started from. There's a lot about Bud Lilly, who we knew real well. He helped us a lot. So it was good putting all this stuff together. That's amazing. So there's a book that, is that book out there now or is it coming out soon? No, it's out right now. Oh, good. Good. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can pick that up. And that is, that's a great. So anything we leave out here today, we'll, we'll make sure to pick up that book as well. Yeah. Fly Fishing West Yellowstone is called Fly Fishing West Yellowstone, A History and Guide. Amazing. Fly Fishing West Yellowstone. Yeah. We'll also put a link to that episode we had with Bruce Staples. We've actually had him on twice now. Um, he did a primer recently of the, of the, uh, expo out there, but, uh, so this is awesome. Uh, so tell me about this, Bob, I want to go back a little bit to, you know, your background. Let, let's take it back to the, the start a little bit. Talk about how you first got into fly fishing. When did that come to be? I, uh, grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and I could, uh, take a bus to, up to, to Springfield, New Jersey, another bus over. I, had, I wrote, took buses as a kid where I hitchhiked a lot too later on but i fished all through new jersey and i've been interested in trout fishing since i was really about 13 years old i fished a little bit earlier than that but i was really interested in trout fishing and with that was with bait and salmon eggs and all that but i also graduated right away to fly fishing there was so much involved in it to learn and i did i just spent a whole lifetime learning yeah, you did. And how did you make it out? So New Jersey as a kid, and then when do you, so I guess, yeah, you go into the army, like you said, that got you out of New Jersey. And then how did you, how did you end up, why West Yellowstone? I went to West Yellowstone because I didn't know anything about West Yellowstone. In those days, I didn't get involved in, and there were, there wasn't a lot of information you could get on one town like West Yellowstone. But Yellowstone Park, I did know people who fished there, Years ago, like Herb Howard, who invented the fly tying thread, Herb Howard, Ray Bergman, some of the old old timers talked about it, and I was able to catch on. So I made a promise to myself. I went in the army, and I, my promise was I'd save my money. When I get out of the army, I would buy a car and drive to Yellowstone. Yellowstone was the key. That's where I came. I fished Yellowstone for about four days before someone told me a guy I met was fishing with. He said, there's a town just 14 miles away, cold beer and dancing girls. I said, when do we leave? <laughs> there you so go. That's how I found West Yellowstone and Bud Lilly. I did have a, from Jimmy Darren, one of the well-known fly fishermen in the 40s and 50s. He told me I was still in my Army uniform. I went into his shop in New York City, and he said, if you go out west, look up a, a name of Pat Barnes. So I wrote on a piece of paper, Pat Barnes, Big Brown Trout. I carried that all the way across the country. And lo and behold, when I got to West Yellowstone a couple of days after fishing the park, went into West Yellowstone, there was a sign, Pat Barnes. And that's how I got familiar with Pat. And then I eventually 
bought him out. So that's how I opened my own for about nine years. And then I saved my money and I bought Pat Barnes out. He wanted to retire. He was in his mid-70s. Right, right, right. So yeah, Pat Barnes. So how were Pat Barnes and Bud Lilly, were they more similar or more different in their styles? They were, well, it's hard just to, just to come up with something real quick, but Bud was more of a businessman. Pat uh-huh. Barnes was more of a guide. They both were guides and good guides and fishermen, but Pat goes way back into the 30s. He taught school in West Yellowstone as a young man in the 30s and guided for Dan Bailey and some of the early Don Martinez. Pat Barnes knew real well, so he knew a lot of these people way before Bud even knew them. Right, 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 right. So, okay, so you got Pat Barnes. And then who are we Who are we missing here from the history, just some of the other names? Have we talked about most of the names, the big names people would be thinking about here? Well, Jim Danskin ran a shop, Danskin's Tackle Store, and I wrote about him in my book. We got pictures of all these people and stories about them in this book, Fly Fishing West Yellowstone, A History and Guide. Perfect. Perfect. And so I'm real with Bruce Staples and I boosted all the main writing. There, I put a lot of information in the book with Bruce and all, but he did. He was quite a writer, and he did all the hard writing. How'd that look? So Bruce is a, a little bit younger than you. Um, did you? Did he kind of interview you, or did you guys just sit down and talk? How did that book come to be? We talked together several times. I worked with him with this East Idaho Fly Fishing Fair, and uh, Bruce and I became good friends. He's about five years older than I am. Oh, yes, he he's older. Okay. Yeah, and he did that for a living. He worked at the INELL out there in the desert and the nuclear tests and stuff, and his job was to go out there and write. And I said, how did you get to be a good writer? He said, they hired me to write, and, and I wrote whatever they told me. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, so he he's experienced. That's <laughs> it awesome. It was just that easy. They told him what to write, and he wrote it. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Okay. So he became a good writer, real good. Yeah, yeah, no, I know that book is well known, that book, and he's wrote, written some other stuff, I think, as well. He's written several other books on flies, yes. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, let's hear about the shop a little more, because we had um, a number of guests um, that have been on that have talked about the shop. One of them was one of those kids that was there. What, what was that shop? Like, take us back. Has the shop changed much between back when you opened in 74 and today? A little, yeah, and today is, is different, but uh, back in 74 was selling some flies and a few rods. I also was employed. I taught Bud Lilly's fly fishing school along with Bud and Bud's son, Greg Lilly, and Charlie Brooks. So we worked together in there. And after several years with Bud Lilly, I got offered a job with the Fenwick Corporation in West Yellowstone. And they opened this, built a schoolhouse in West Yellowstone, about eight miles out, out of town. And I worked for them for 10 years teaching fly casting. Oh wow! But I ran my store, ran my store at the same time. Gotcha. So what would that look? So flight, so the Fenwick, so people would come in, and it was essentially just a fly casting school, or was it like everything? It was a fly fishing school, not just casting, but we put a lot of effort into casting. We uh, had people. It was pretty much a five day program. Three days were in the classroom on the casting ponds, teaching casting, and then two days were usually spent on the river. With lunch and all that, we would bring as many as 21 people a week would be about an average for us at Fenwick School. And I worked for 10 years with them teaching casting 
once Yellowstone Park opened, the Yellowstone River, on the 15th of July every year, it used to open. We would bring the whole class there on Wednesday. So they had three days, or Thursday rather, they had three days of, of instruction, and then two days fishing on the river with guides. Most of the guides were casting instructors like myself. Gotcha. So people were getting their, their casting doubt in. And then what were the techniques you guys would be in that school? Would you cover kind of everything, dries, nymphs, streamers, like all everything? We, I covered a, myself where you shared things. I covered reading the water and pretty much the wet fly. And Charlie Brooks sometimes helped us out with some of the nymph fishing, stuff like that. We had a few different people show up. Frank and Gladys Gray ran the school. And they were tournament casters from California, from the uh, Los Angeles area. They belonged to the casting clubs back there. And on a Sunday, they'd go to the church and have a breakfast out and spend all afternoon fly casting or tournament casting, other kind of casting, spinning and bait casting. And it was a big clubs back there would compete on casting and just fun. And we, I learned a lot of my technique from the, California casters itself. There's a bunch of really good casters down there in the Long Beach area. All right, okay. So that's where you learn, and then you eventually, like the Federation, the fly fishing, or what is it called now? Federation of Fly Fishers, right? Was the group you, you were there early on. International Federation of Fly Fishers. They changed it to international because we have a lot of our uh, members now who live all over the world. Yeah, so that was something you were certified early on, right, with the FFF? I was certified. I was one of the first. I was the first six people to pass the test that took the certification test for for the uh, fly casting instructors. Wow. And what year was that? I was around, boy, I'm trying to think now. Let's say 1982. Okay. Yeah, 82. Perfect. Wow, so that's it. So you're there early on, whenever that exact year was, not important. But And then who were some of the early other people that were getting their certification early on with FFF? Uh, John Gajewski, who was one of my guides for years and a close friend, he got certified at the same time. There was about eight of us took the test and six of us passed. It was about eight-hour tests. And uh, seven of the other people from ran it from Barbara and Alan Rohr, from the Fly Casting Club in California, one of the main instructors, they helped certify. Doug Swisher helped certify some of us. There's just a whole list of names, people that were good about that. Bruce, the name Bruce Richards from Bozeman area, he's retired now, but he worked for scientific anglers all his life once he got out of college. And he's one of the finest casting instructors going, Bruce Richards. So he was involved in that. So a lot of us, like me, were involved right from the beginning with this casting. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, tell me about this. I want to hear this story because I've, I was online and I actually saw the Drake magazine had a post, a blog post about this. But you had this this 10-pound Madison River fish caught on an indicator. I watched the video um, and it was pretty amazing because I was expecting, you know, like just some fish and you pull out this like over 10 pound brown trout. Talk about that. What, what was, why was the camera rolling there? And then how, how did you find a fish like, and have you ever found anything that big before? I was doing a little casting program on the, the correct way to nymph fish and, uh, for an outfit out of Colorado. And right now I can't put the name on it, but, uh, Terry Wickstrom is the name, I think. 
anyway, we did that, and I it went down between the lakes. The wind was blowing so hard. We went to the Madison in the morning. No wind, and nobody was there. Just above, just thank you. Just just above, uh, just below Hebgen Dam. So we went there, went there, and that was really good area. So I put an indicator on, and we had two cameras, one on the hill, and one right next to me in the water. I didn't know that big fish was there. I had no idea. But after a half hour of fishing, I caught nothing. And it seemed to me I needed to catch something to bend the rod for this movie we're making. We were making a movie on the correct way to nymph fish for trout. And I haven't caught a damn thing. Most guys would move. But it was the wind was so bad, it was in a prime spot, so we stayed in. So I put another fly on. I put a little green caddis rockworm caddis fly nymph on. Plus, I had a March brown nymph, which I really expected maybe to catch a fish on. And I, I was casting on camera, as you saw, and all of a sudden that indicator stopped, and I struck. And I was into something really big. I knew it was really big. I've caught big fish before, but this this seemed to be really big. And I just stuck with them. I thought it took about 15 minutes to land them. That's what I tell you. But according to the camera people, it took eight minutes. And the fish was actually 30 inches long and weighed 10 plus pounds, a little bit over 10. And I kept the fish. I did take some ridicule and some history and people threatened never to use my store again because I kept the fish. But I've been a taxidermist and studied it for 40 years. Oh, wow. And I do all my mounts myself. And I refurbished several mounts for Yellowstone Park, stuff like that. So I wanted to mount them myself. Kelly Gallup do had a new way. He was a taxidermist too, or is, and he uh, he had a new way of doing a head. The head of fish you can't preserve very well, and usually they go bad or dry out. He had a way of doing it in plastic, making a plastic mold of the fish. The way you got to do is attach the plastic head to the body of the fish when you mount it, and then you can paint it and do all the work. And he Kelly came in the store and looked at that, and he says, there's one thing I knew I was going to catch you on. He said, I didn't catch you. He said, where you attached the head to the main body of the fish, I can always tell where somebody did it. With you, I can't tell. Oh, wow. There you so go. I, I, he was, so I got his approval. He helped me do the head in plastic, the mouth inside, the outside, he did the whole head in liquid plastic and let it put it in there here on top, down the bottom, and made a plastic head with the jaw and everything. Oh wow. Yeah, that's so cool. So it's all done. I've got the fish hanging in my store and I did take some ridicule, but I've kept about six fish in my whole life. So I, I felt I, I deserved it. Being a taxidermist, I wasn't gonna waste it. I used everything. I even took the head when I cut it off and sent it to Fish and Game in Bozeman. And they said the best they could figure out, the fish was 11 years old. Oh, 11 years old. Wow. Dang, so we even crazy. used the head for a little information there. So everything went well. And the people that were mad at me, I guess they're still mad or not, whatever. Well, I think anybody that would be still mad at you now would be probably a crazy person. It seems like, you know what I mean? Like you're... You're, you're over however many years you've been fishing, you know, six fish doesn't sound like that's too many fish to take. Um, well, my report to them that said something like that is that a good biologist would have taken that fish out of circulation anyway. Right. 
Right, right, right. How many fish like that? You know, so that fish is over ten pounds. How many fish like that in the you know Madison, really anywhere in West Yellowstone? Would you have you seen over the years? Over the years, I've seen a fair amount of five and seven pounds, and I heard about one close to ten pounds years ago in Hebgen Lake near West Yellowstone. We've uh, got several reports of fish that are about fifteen pounds. One of them I mounted for fishing game, and it's hanging in the office in Bozeman, Montana. With my name under it, I was mounting it. I didn't catch it, but it was a 15-pound fish that was gill netted and harvested by fishing game in Hebgen Lake. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I'm going to swing by. We'll send some people that way to take a look at that fish, the 15-pounder as well. So your fish, if they come into your shop, they can see that 10-pounder on the wall. Oh, yeah. It's there. Yeah. What else is on the wall? When you look around, I, my dad had a shop, a little tiny shop back in the day. I remember he had all sorts of cool old stuff, like creels and just old hats and stuff. I mean, what, when you look around your shop, describe a little bit like what it looks like for somebody who hasn't been there. Well, we have every species of trout mounted that I mounted them all and oh, hung wow. them up there, different sizes. So brook, brown, rainbow, even even a couple of cutthroats or uh, hybrid fish from Yellowstone Lake area. So it's, it's, uh, I got those. And then I have a wall of fame of hats. I have a book to go with it. So all the famous fishermen that I knew, once they passed on or they were just ready leaving town, I would get their hat. And I have a book to go along with. It's a book of hats. You can write a history. A lot of it's obits, but the history of different people and the picture of their hat. And I have the hat. It's all on display in my store. The problem is I got now that I'm getting older and put a, put getting ready to put my place up for sale, I don't know what to do with all the hats and everything else I have. Right, right, right. Well, I think they should go in some sort of a fly fishing, you know, <laughs> somewhere, museum, right? The, we can't lose these hats. They have a good museum right across the street from my store, Yellowstone Museum, and I have a fly fishing section in there, but would like to expand that make it even more, but we have some rods and reels and oh, lines and different things that people have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think we can get that taken care of. We'll get some, maybe get some people to, to pony up some money and expand that thing. We'll, we'll get those hats in there. And well, talk about that with your, your shop. So, I, and again, I know this because it's like, you know, it's hard to leave anything, right? You've done something your whole life. Do you look at that where you're kind of thinking if you were to say, hey, I'm, I'm just going to retire, I'm going to sell this thing, would you be okay with that? Is that something you're thinking about? Or are you kind of thinking, no, I'm going to stay here till you know till the end? I've been thinking about it for a while, but we're getting closer to maybe doing something. You never know. But uh, I, we're, my wife and I are saying, how are we going to get rid of all this stuff? So somebody doesn't want to buy everything. I even got a bunch of deer heads. I was a deer hunter for a lot of years, and I mounted all my own deer heads. So I got some of them to give away or sell or something. So I got a lot of stuff to get rid of. Once I, once we decide to maybe sell the store or the uh, or the area, you know, the actual building and property itself. It's a small small building, but it's uh, it's done a good job for me over the years. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to get in there and check this out. It sounds like you got some pretty well in the history, like the hat. So do you have one like like Bud Lilly? Does he have a hat up there? Yes, I got two of Bud's. You know, one of them, he actually took off his head and handed it to me. Oh, wow. What what kind of hat did Bud Lilly wear? He had a couple of them, a straw hat, cowboy hat, and he had a uh, more expensive hat, you know, like a Stetson or something, with a, with a Federation pin on it. 
He always wore that. He wore the hat every day in the store. Once I got going in my store, most of the guys and myself started wearing the baseball caps. So we started stopped using the fly fisherman. But on the river, I still wear a fly fishing hat or Stetson style. But normally uh, for teaching and stuff, we wear a baseball cap with a logo on it. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake, and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between. Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. So back to that fish, that 10 pound fish grew to 10 pounds and these bigger fish, is that, how is that happening? Is that because they're heading to the lake and growing or are they like, do you know kind of the history of that fish you caught, that 10 pounder? I know pretty much. We know it's, we're pretty sure it came from, from Quake Lake and Quake Lake has a fair amount of eight and 10 pound fish. Nobody catches many of them, but they're there. They'll come up and spawn and like all, all fisheries that are spawning, some of those fish will hold over. This big brown I got was in June. That fish had been back in Quake Lake, but he wasn't. He was right up in the Madison because he was 10 pounds. There's lots of small fish in the Madison. There's plenty to eat. He came up the following year before to spawn, or maybe several times, and just found a nice spot. He was the only fish in that area. That's why I didn't catch anything. I kept fishing the same spot, and there was no fish there. He was the only one. Finally, he took my fly. Yeah, and the fly was a green rockworm. You had a had an indicator, right? So you were nymph fishing. I was nymph fishing. I was trying to demonstrate the correct method of nymph fishing, and I think I pulled it off with a ten pound fish. Wow. So you're fishing. So nymphing. So have over the years, did you in your classes in your shop? Do you kind of teach everything, or do you guys tend to like try to when the dry flies are out? That's the focus. Oh, there's a lot of heavy focus on the dry flies. People want to see the fish take the fly. But we were very happy to fish nymphs down in Madison now on the float trips. A lot of guys are using indicators and uh, nymphs, and I, where we get a lot of white fish and a share of trout too. So that's one way to get a beginner, fairly easy way to cast out, mend your line, and follow the indicator down. That indicator does two things. tells you when you get a strike, naturally. But more than that, it tells you whether you're floating the fly correctly or not. If you're dragging the indicator, you're dragging the fly. But if you can keep the indicator going exactly the speed of the water, the fly is going to be down near the bottom, and then it's going to be moving exactly the way the trout want it. Exactly, exactly. What would be another? That's a great tip on the indicator stuff. What would be, you know, if somebody was like for a guide, you know, there's a lot of guides and folks that listen to this as well. What would be a tip for them, like a new guide that's coming in, he's maybe not super experienced? What, what do you tell your new guides? Long leader and long tippet. I like a nine-foot leader, and I put about an 18-inch butt section on the leader, and then about a 24-inch tippet. The tippet usually starts out around 4X, something like that, but 5X is the most common, especially Firehole River in Madison in the park. 5X for sure. 
We don't have to go to the 6X very often, but once in a while in midsummer, fishing trichos, we may want to go to the 6X, but we pretty much I stay with 5X as best I can. And that way, key, casting is everything. Joan Wolf made a great comment about casting one time. She says, if you don't know what you're doing in the fly fishing world on the river, she said, at least if you can cast, you're in the game. If you can't right. cast, you're never in the game. That's a great point. And, uh, I guided and fished with Joan and Lee Wolf quite a bit many years ago. And they were, she's still a good friend of mine. Joan Wolf and Lee passed on many years ago now. That's right. That's right. So you knew Lee as well? I fished with him, Lee and Joan. Oh, yeah, Lee and I were good friends. Right. What What was Lee's? Uh, he probably wore a bunch of different hats. Does he have a cap up in your shop? He has a cap in my shop, but Lee didn't wear a lot of hats. Most of the time he had that white hair, and he just fished with no cap at all. Oh, no he hat. did, right. <laughs> yeah, I he did fish with a hat today. I fished, One of the days I fished with him, and we do have that hat hanging up. Oh, you do? Oh, wow, this is cool. Good deal. Sure. All right, so... So that's it. So you, and you mentioned the fire hole at the start. So that's a river I haven't fished. I would love to hit. Sounds like there's more pressure now, like everything, right? You have more people, but uh, when is a good time to hit the fire hole? Like throughout the year? The fire hole you... is going to be the first couple of weeks in June or maybe first right up to the first couple of weeks in July. Okay. And that's it. And then what happens after July? It's after July, things get a little too warm on the fire hole and it's not fishing as well. The, the good news about the fire hole it's loaded with fish. Most of them are small, so there's not much as far as a big fish. I did hear of a couple 18-inch fish this year. Guys, I know, fished a fire hole and got a couple 18-inches, but not much bigger than that. Years ago, they caught a few bigger fish. I don't know what happened to them, but the biomass of fish went in the numbers on the fire hole. It's mostly brown trout, but some rainbows, but it's absolutely loaded with fish. So if you want to have a good day or evening fishing, you go up to the fire hole, put a little dry fly on, a little pale morning done is a good all-around fly or small, like size 16 caddis, and fish that ripple water, and you do really well. The reason you don't do well in mid-July and August on the fire hole is those fish move out of the river, move up to some tributaries to get some colder water. The water gets too warm for trout, and they move. Now, about some sometime around the 10th of September, those fish move back in the river. So most of the guides fish the fire hole in the month of June, and then again in late September, October. October. And then does it uh, fish throughout? The, what happens when the, the weather starts getting cold there? Does it, can you still fish it? The worse the weather gets, the better it fishes. Some of the best fishing I ever had on the fire hole is in the middle of a snowstorm. Snow coming down and fish rising all over the place. Right, right. You said the uh, 16 number, uh, size 16 caddis. What was your go-to caddis dry to use? Just a regular elk care caddis. We all tie a little different one, but just yep, standard. Uh, yeah. With a, with a, did you have a, all different body colors or do you have a specific one you loved? I like the tan. I like the elk, elk care wing, tan elk care wing, and tan body. Wow, this is cool. So the fire hole, that's definitely one uh, we're going to have to hit. Did you guys, you must have just fished everything. Were there? What were some of the other big rivers you really enjoyed, you know, when you were guiding? I fished the Henry's Fork. I had a guide license for that river in the early days of my store. But then I got to the point where it was worth worth some dollars, and I was in tight with, with money and stuff. So I sold my Henry's Fork license and stopped guiding down there. But I fished down there. Quite a fit, 
quite a few years early on when I was a young guy. I could guide down there. I had a license. And then later on, I could just fish myself. But it was Henry's Fork's one of the top rivers of our area. That the upper Madison. The Gallatin gets fished really hard, and it's loaded with fish. The upper reaches have some brown, but most of it's cutthroat and some rainbow. But uh, the Gallatin's good all the way. It gets fished almost every day of the year, even Christmas. If you drive to Bozeman, you can find at least one person fishing the Gallatin. That's right. So you got the Gallatin, you imagine, yeah, you guys, and you, how far from your shop to drive over to the Henry's Fork, say up to um, Trout Hunter? How far would that be? How long? 20 minutes. Oh, that's it. It's only 20 minutes away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I always forget about that. You're, you're right there. Yeah. So that's, these are all, all these huge streams are right next door. Yeah. We're all right together. And a lot of good years ago, things were a little tougher with, with competitors and stuff, but right now it seems like everybody's getting along real well. Yeah, that's right. Tell me about this. So I want to hear a little bit about just a little bit on West Yellowstone. We're going to dig a little bit back into the fishing here if we have time, but um, especially the casting. But what's the West Yellowstone? So you have, uh, you know, that town. I've been through it. It's been a little while. But what makes it unique? I mean, obviously, it's a, the tourist thing going on. But what is, is there something special about West Yellowstone itself? One of the things that made it unique years ago, we had dirt streets. Oh, wow. And holes all over the place. And when it rained... You could cast a fly line out <laughs> in the middle of the street. It was wet. But, wow. Uh, the other thing about West is the great thing is we're in the best area for trout fishing. No matter what direction you can go, all you have to go about from one mile to about 10 miles. You're in every river we want and 20 miles, including the Henry's Fork. So it's all right here in West Yellowstone. And we have, like we say, four, about four of the best shops going around. Right. That's what it is. It, it literally, it comes down. You got all the tourists coming through for the park and everything, but at the end of the day, you guys have some of the best fishing in the country, like some of the biggest names, biggest shops, biggest rivers. That's it. Sure. The Madison is just less than a mile away. You could walk there from here across country or take a car downstream and down about three miles out of town, the river crosses the highway and every fish coming out of Hebgen Lake in the fall come right up that area, right across the highway. So it gets fished heavy, but people do catch them, a lot of nice fish. I'd say not a lot of real big ones, but I'd say an 18-inch fish, the guy can get a good fisherman get an 18-incher for the day for sure, and wow. some smaller fish. And some smaller fish. And, uh, and Kelly Gallup, we mentioned him earlier. Do you know him pretty well? I, I got to know him once he opened his store. We got to be friendly, yes. Yeah, yeah. What's the, we've had him on a couple of times. He's always an entertaining, you know, guest to have on. What's, uh, what do you, uh, you know, what, what do you think about when you hear Kelly Gow? What's, describe him a little for somebody who doesn't know him. He runs a nice shop down there, right down below the dam at Hebgen Lake. He's got some good guides work for him. And he's built a shop to where he's got some good fly time material, some good flies. And he's got a good place that you can stop and get a fishing license and get something to drink. And we you know, soda pop and ice cream and stuff, and he's got all that. So he's got that slide-in area, and that's been around for a long time. That's right. That's right. And he does his own, I think he does his own schools, right, out there as well. But does does he have, uh, I want to say he has kind of, is there lodging and all that too at his place? He has some lodging. Just what he has, I'm not sure. But I know I saw, I've been to a couple of his cabins. So he does have some rooms in cabins, like like two rooms or three to a cabin. Yeah. That's right. That's right. 
Well, I want to hear on some of the casting because you're a casting expert. You've been doing this your whole life. What are some, you know, when somebody comes to you and maybe they're, you know, maybe it's windy out, they struggle or just they struggle with casting in general. What, where do you start with somebody to give them some tips? I have something I wrote on casting, which is pretty simple, but I always start with the role cast. So I teach the role cast. That gives them the fundamental that the line always follows the tip of the rod and you bring the rod forward and increase in speed and then make a sudden dead stop. The stop, the rod stops, but the line continues to roll and it'll unroll in front of you. So the roll cast is the most important. And then we teach the pick up and lay down. And then we teach the false cast. Past that, we teach fishing casts. And you right turn, left turn, and there's a lot of reach cast. You reach to the right, reach to the left. There's a lot to it to learn for a second. But to start out, the Fenwick School is where I learned much, most of my teaching ability over the years, many years. And uh, we go with pretty much the roll cast, pick up and lay down, and the false cast. And the false cast. And uh, and as far as rods, you, the Fenwick, I remember, I mean, back in the day, right, they were a, a large company. Um, I mean, has as far as the rods you guys sell in your shop now, what, what sort of uh, rods are you carrying in there? Late, lately, I've been carrying the uh, St. Croix rods and some lower price Shakespeare and stuff. There's a lot of people want to fly fish but don't really want to spend too much money. So I provide that with a, a decent casting rod and something at around $100, $150 rather than uh, four or five or six hundred dollars but they're all good nowadays it's hard to find a bad rod even coming from china there's good rods there's some good casting rods out there so that's good i sold sage i was the first person ever i was first shop whoever had a sage rod in their store i was the one but then at the fenwick school and sage came out of fenwick so when they were going to build their own rods they talked to me and I was, gave them an order, and I got the first one myself and one guy from Seattle. We both claim we're the first ones to ever have a sage rod in a store. They weren't even called sage then. They were called Winslow. Oh, they were. Winslow, that's what was sage, okay. Winston, but Winslow. Oh, yeah, and Winslow. the reason they had to stop the name is they were in the town of Winslow. Sage was made in a, an old, you know, Fenwick the man who, uh, Don Green, who actually started Sage, he actually, his father actually built the building where all the Fenwick rods were made on Bainbridge Island off Seattle. And then when, when Sage got so big, they bought that factory back from Don Green's father, or Don Green, evidently, and they, uh, they use it for Fenwick, for Sage now. The Fenwick rods are still sold, but they're sold through an import corporation, so they're not sold by Fenwick anymore, but they're still available. That that was the finest rod you could buy in 1967 or so. Fenwick rod, and uh, and the price of the rod was $37.50. And was that a glass rod or a graphite? That was a glass rod, brown glass. I always kidded Bud Lilly right up till he died about selling me my first Fenwick rod. He sold it to me for $37.50, didn't even give me a discount. <laughs> so he used to laugh. We used to laugh about that quite a bit. Right. So you bought $37.50 for your first uh, glass Fenwick? That was my finest. That was my best rod to date. It had a serial number on it. It was a seven and a half foot 
Fenwick glass rod, two-piece rod it was, and uh, and Jim uh, Jim Green helped design the ferrule, the design of the whole rod. He built that rod with a design for the rod. What he did is he went on a fishing trip in the 50s on the south fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. They got several rafts. One raft got in the, turned upside down, and they lost all the rods. Everything broke. So Jim told me the story himself. So what he did is he started sitting on the bank. He was an engineer, and he was started putting rods together without a ferrule, putting one rod over the other rod, and he designed a ferrolite ferrule. He went back to work the following week, and they designed the first rod with a ferrolite ferrule, and it stopped, changed the whole section, the whole course of rod building forever. Wow. Wow. So that was the original. That's how the ferrule, well, not the ferrule, they had ferrules before, but this was a special type of ferrule? It's a glass ferrule. One piece fits over the other. Oh, right. Yeah. Before then, it was metal, like the bamboo. Yeah, it was just metal. It was metal. So with one piece fitting over the other, that becomes the that becomes the strongest part of the rod and not the weakest part. Dang, that's so cool. So that's how literally the the present that's day ferrule. He, he was actually take the number of rods. Probably some of them were spinning, some were fly. I know, but he probably stuck one bottom section to a different rod over the top. Maybe he had to cut it a little bit off the broken rod, and he fitted in one piece over the other, and that became the ferrolite ferrule designed by Don Green and uh, Jim Green, excuse me, and uh, for the Fenwick Corporation. Yeah, Don Green, Jim Green, they're not related, but they had the same last name. And both in, uh, both in involved with the rod company, Sage, and, they, you know, they, and that's how they come up with it. They had to change the name from Winslow to Sage. I don't know where they got Sage from, but it's a good name. Yeah. <laughs> so I had wow. several of the original rods in my store that said Winslow on them, they didn't say Sage. That was before they used the name Sage. Right, 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 Somehow right. they couldn't use the name Winslow because that's the town of Winslow is where, where they were at. Winslow, Washington? Was that Winslow, Washington? Yeah, Winslow, Washington on Bainbridge Island. Oh, on Bainbridge. Yeah, which is where they still are, I think. Wow. And Jim, you knew Jim Green pretty well? Oh, yes. Is Jim still alive? No, Jim's gone now. In the 1930s, casting a distance tournament, nobody could believe that he did that. And he, I forget what the distance was, but with a rod he made and he won the tournament. He was a tournament caster, one of the top guys. He was one of the guys. So, wow, this is great. And and so, Jim Green, and that, that rod, that 3750 rod, uh, the Fenwick, do you still have that rod? Or do you Do you have a lot of your older rods still? I have everything. I've never given anything away except the rods that I give away, my original rods, I still have it. I got it marked uh, in the case, $37.50. <laughs> there you go. So you still got it. So you still got the rod. Why, why was it Why was it a seven and a half foot rod and not say an eight or nine foot rod? I could have picked an eight or eight and a half. Eight and a half was the most popular back in those days. But I still lived in New Jersey. And that seven and a half foot seemed to do just what I want. For out here, it was okay. And in New Jersey, I use it where I use it more before I moved out here as a young fisherman. So I use it there. But my preference on fishing rods is eight and a half foot. Even today with the nice sage rods, we have St. Croix, all the rods out there. I prefer eight and a half for a five, five, six line. 
And that's what I use all my own fishing for, personally, is that eight and a half foot. But seven and a half is still a nice rod for small streams and stuff. Yep. So the eight and a half gives you over the nine. It's just what gives you a little more in the tighter quarters. Is that kind of mainly why it's a little better? The thing, the reason I like the eight and a half and over the nine, there's not much difference. So you could argue on it a little bit, but there's not much difference. But the eight and a half is faster line speed than the nine. Because eight and a half, six inches shorter, you can go from stop to stop quicker than you can with the nine foot because it takes that much longer. So you increase your speed. And I like a fast fly line because it goes where I want it. It goes where I'm looking. Wherever I want to put it, the line goes there. And that's the speed. And I like that. Just a little extra speed. Is it better than all nines? No, it's not better than all eight and a half. It's just a good one. So it's my preference on that one just because of the line speed the line moves faster through the air that's it that's an awesome tip that's so cool to hear so you got all the rods going and what um what has been i'm sure you've had tons of different reels do you have a real uh old reel you like that's in the shop still well the fenwick uh, or years ago the medalist was the number one that we sold i must have sold i'd say a couple of dozen fenwick 37 dollars and 50 cent rods in a week for those people taking to school at Fenwick. We lent them rods and all, too, but they wanted to buy one. And we put a medalist reel with them. And a medalist reel sold for $14 back in those days. Nowadays, you can't get them, but Fenwick came out with some of the newer reels on the market today. So they are quite nice. Right, right, right. That's awesome. So tell me this, Bob. So on your uh, in your shop, what's your daily? So now obviously things have probably changed, but when you come in, are you still going into the shop and are you still there a good part of the day? I'm there all the time in the summer, except when I go fishing or guide. But I'm not guiding this year, so I may still fish with fish with some people, but I'm not doing any guiding and no money transferred. That's right. But we can if somebody was going to stop by this summer, say in June, July, or something like that, you you would probably be around there. Um, I may not be in the afternoon all the time. I get tired or go fishing, but I'll be there in the morning. In the morning. Okay, so if somebody wants to catch you, they can come in, say, before noon or something like that? Yes. Oh, good. That's awesome. So, And then who? And then when you're not there, who's taking care of the shop? We'll have several people. My wife, Sharon, is in the store a little bit in the back. She keeps everything going the way it's supposed to. And uh, I have several employees that are really good fishermen and tournament casters. There you go. So there's plenty of knowledgeable people in your shop. and Oh, yeah. I think probably a lot of people are going to want to swing by just to see that the wall of hats. Is it a wall? Is it like a wall? The, it's the whole wall of hats? It's a whole wall of hats and a book. You can look up a hat, see somebody's hat. I hand them a book to read about that person. Jim Green, we got his hat up there. We got Les Icorn. We got people you can't believe that are up there. And, there. and Charlie Brooks. We got his hat because I actually fished with Charlie wearing that hat. Wow. How many hats do you think are up there? Uh, I'd like to say 100, but I don't think there's 100 up. That's 70 maybe. Seven in that range. That's a lot of hats. Okay. This is awesome. So basically, yeah, I mean, you're kind of in that period, just kind of like I said, my my dad, who is just, I mean, he's kind of out there just, you know, enjoying life, right? You put all your, your effort in. How's it look when you look back on it? Is there anything when you say, hey, wow, I built this this name, this fly shop in one of the most, you know, amazing places in the country? How does it feel for you when you look back on everything? It looks really good. I, uh, I have something a little different. I didn't know it as a kid, but I was born with dyslexia. 
and I couldn't speak, read and very well, and I couldn't couldn't read, couldn't spell, couldn't do anything, and I reversed numbers. And as I grew up a little bit, I had no idea I had dyslexic. My ex-wife mentioned that in the store. She said one time, this was years in the 80s, she said, do you know that you're dyslexic? And I had no idea what dyslexic was. So I, after my divorce, I started reading all I could on dyslexic and went to a couple of seminars and I actually did several books, have been published several times. So I'm not not as uh, proud of what I did. I'm proud of how far I came from where I started. Right. So that's how I look at my life, how far I came from where I actually started. That's right. And, and is dyslexia, for those who don't know, is that something that you just always have your life, or do you now don't really have any dyslexia? I didn't know I didn't know what the name was, so I didn't know I had anything, even through the Army. I could read music, believe it or not, but I, I was in the Army band, so I was proud of that. But uh, other than that, uh, I just came a long ways from where I started. I came here with $12,000 and a dream, and I ended uh, real well. So I am proud of that, but I'm not pr so proud of how what I did. A lot of guys have done more than I've done, but I, uh, I, I had a good good run in there, and everything is paid for, and I've got a hundred A1 credit rating. I haven't screwed anybody with payment on anything. Amazing. That's awesome, Bob. That's that's so cool to well, hear. That, I think. That's what I'm proud of, not what I did, but how far I came from where I started. Yeah. Well, I think you've definitely, I think you're probably selling yourself a little short, you know, because I know a lot, I've heard and talked to a lot of people, you know, and your name has come up a lot, right? I think a lot of people attribute a lot to you. So I think you probably influence and think of the, you know, I, I can't even imagine, right? The hundreds, thousands of people who have come through the town in your shop, right? And probably you've touched on and got into fly fishing because of that. That, that must feel pretty good as well. I met a lot of people. That's good. Well, let's start to, let's take it out of here right uh, pretty quick here with the, uh, you mentioned music. I, I always love touching on the music. Did you, were you a musician? Did you play music? Did you listen to music? What, what was music for you? I was a musician and in these high school band, but my whole family were drummers all the way back to 1868. My grand grandfather, my great grandfather gave me my first drumming lesson. So I was a drummer and I uh, did as best I could. I tried out for the U S army band and I, made a tryout, went through the U.S. Military Conservatory of Music, which is with hosts the Navy, Army, and Marines, went through that school, and it got stationed, believe it or not, right near home, 50 miles from home in uh, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. So I was in the Army band. I was proud of that. I did a good job. I worked hard in there, and all the time I still had that dyslexia and not able to spell right or read well or anything. And that, that did bother me growing up. I, I'm not ashamed to say that's just the way it was, but, uh, I'm proud of how far I came. I'm sitting here today with everything paid with a really nice wife. Everything's going well. Yeah. I think that's a great uh, reminder for everybody. You know, like it's like you have struggles and sometimes you kind of got to battle above those struggles. You know I mean? That's, that's something that, you know, I've had to do for certain things that life throws stuff at you, right? And the the key is to stick with stick with it. It seems like you stuck with it, even though dyslexia was not easy. It was not easy, but uh, at least I always liked fly fishing. And the other thing that made I fly fishing great is it's a learning experience. You're learning every time you go out. Even as a guide, you're supposed to people think you know it all. You don't know it all. You're learning all the time. 
that's what makes it really fun. Love that. Love that, Bob. Well, I think we can leave it there. This has been an amazing conversation today. Um, we'll send everybody out to uh, Jacqueline's Fly Shop, and definitely um, I'm going to pop in there when I'm in. Hopefully we can get up there soon uh, when the season gets started. And, uh, yeah, I just want to give a heads up. For you, this year is 2023 now. As you look out, are you just kind of enjoying uh, – it seems like semi-retirement. Is that how it feels for you, just kicking back and enjoying life? You're getting closer to it. That's right. Thanks, Bob. Hey, uh, I just wanted to again say uh, thanks for taking the time today. This has been amazing and uh, appreciate you know everything you've done for fly fishing and excited to keep in touch with you. Thank you. Take care. Bob Jacklin on Traveled, part of the Wet Fly Swing podcast and Swing Outdoors. This podcast was supported by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory. You can support this podcast and Yellowstone Teton by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash Teton, T-E-T-O-N and let any of the companies know that you heard them through this podcast and they'll give us some support. Don't forget to check back with me if you have a local area or a spot around the country you want to learn more about. This is our chance to take a deep dive uh, into these areas, and I would love to get some feedback from you. Send me a message, dave at wetflyswing.com for all the information. Thanks again for your support today, and let's take a quick look before we get out of here. Let's take a look. We haven't done this in a while. I always love doing this because I am going to see if anything's been updated i'm gonna go to wetflyswing.com slash teton gotta remember to do this because it's always exciting right away i'm gonna pop in here where wilderness meets happiness in idaho okay so we got the regions and we've been covering a few of these regions uh so far idaho falls island park uh saint anthony swan valley teton valley we've covered quite a bit of this so far which has been awesome accommodation things to do spring events calendar guides outfitters let's just go to guides outfitters to see who we're missing here guides outfitter so here we go there's a list we got fishing guides we got guides and outfitters hunting guides um so here we go so we've got the henry's fork lodge which we've had on um we have heard about three rivers ranch i've heard about the uh we've had the henry's fork foundation the lodge of palisades we heard about um uh, moss avery lodge that's one we haven't i don't think i've heard about and uh and also Drift Lodge and Fly Shop. So we got some good stuff here we're gonna be working through. That's a couple of the shops. And I'm just gonna click through the Palisades because I know there was a show done on that. Here we go, Palisades has got a map, it's got directions, a little summary. Located on the banks of the famous South Fork of the Snake River, the Lodge at Palisades Creek offers all inclusive fly fishing trips year round and waterfowl hunting in the fall. Their Orvis Endorsed Lodge and Fly Shop are open May through October. There we go. So there's a shout out to the Lodge at Palisades. I've been wanting to connect more. We have, uh, we're obviously hitting the South Fork um, for the Euro School, which is, uh, which is already, um, we've closed that one up. That's going to be coming up uh, this fall. And, uh, but if you ever want to check on that, we're going to be doing uh, likely another one of those trips next year. And, uh, and I'm going to leave it that for now. I think this is good. Uh, check it out. That's uh, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. And you can see some of the other uh, guides, uh, events, and things like that going on over there. All right. I'm going to get out of here. I hope you have a chance to uh, get out sometime. We're moving into spring, <laughs> kind of spring, summer. And, uh, and it's going to be happening spring, summer, fall. If you get a chance to head out to this part of the woods, uh, you know who to find, you know where to look up, and you know where to find out what to do. All right, I'm going to get out of there. I hope you have a good day. Talk to you soon.